For those of you who don't know me, my name is Brad Rogers. Uh, my wife and I, Sarah, have been going to this church for about seven years, or been involved with the church for about seven years, and we've been leading the youth group for about three. Um, I was asked to preach this morning just because as we go through the pastoral transition, there's a lot of extra work that's on uh, Nate's plate, so just to kind of spread the wealth and get a lot of people involved and kind of take that. Um, I did preach a couple times this summer at camp. Uh, I was a camp uh, speaker this summer. And the original thought was I would preach something that we, were doing, we did this summer, something that, hey, we can just plug it in, it wouldn't be a whole lot of extra work. Uh, but when we kind of looked at the schedule, there was a lot of, uh, there's just a lot going on at our church, which is awesome. That's a good thing. Uh, we have the fall festival, we've had homecoming Sunday, we had moving up Sunday. So just a lot of just different things going on that made it a special service that really got us out of our study of James. And so rather than going off and doing something different, we decided that it would be better if I continued in the seri- uh, our series in James. Um, so many of you are probably wondering why I'm wearing a medal. If you're not, I would ask that you at least pretend like you were wondering the, why I'm wearing a medal. Oh, since you asked so nicely, I will tell you. (laughs) Um, When I think of the book of James, I think of when I was a kid, I was a part of something called Bible quizzing. Anybody do Bible quizzing? Anybody? I got a couple. Got a couple. All right. So it was something that basically, um, I was in the Free Methodist Church, and it was something that many of the church youth got involved in. It was pitted, you know, middle schoolers and uh, high schoolers against each other in the battle of the physical and mental battle of the Bible. Um, I, just to give, like, kind of an idea of what this entails, I looked up, I was looking up, like, the rules and guidelines for Bible quizzing in the Free Methodist Church, um, and I found a 20-page Word document that had the, all of the rules you could ever want to know. Um, and I just pulled the front, the front out that kind of gives a general description, so I'm going to read that to you. So, in Free Methodist Bible quizzing competition, two teams quiz against each other. Each team has two or three qu- quizzers active at any given time with substitutions permitted. Quizzes are 15 questions in length, and 20 points are given for each correct response, with no points are deducted for incorrect answers. Only the first four quizzers off their seats are eligible to attempt an answer for any question, with points given only for the first correct answer. A quizzer may, may correctly answer only five questions per quiz, so you have to go to section H5 to see what a quiz out is. If a quizzer jumps before the question has been completed, you have to see the, the pre-jump, which is in F3, and does not correctly complete the answer to, or, I'm sorry, and does not correctly complete and answer the question, the question is reread for the opposing team. So these are big things. There's a lot of rules. It's kind of like the NFL. Um, you know, you've got to make sure that you're very focused. Um, so basically, you know, you're just kind of, as a, as a kid, you're like hovering on this, your chair. There's a little seat there that you're sitting on. You're not really sitting. You're, you're trying to like put as much weight on it to make it think that you're sitting so that you can get up very quickly uh, and be the first one off of your seat. So it's a really good quad workout. I thought I would show, but I decided that well, that would be unwise. <laughs> so the first, the first year that I was involved was in seventh grade, um, and I was not particularly good. All right, we did that year. We did James and Romans, and I am not good at memorization. So, like the first chapter, I was fine, and then you had the second chapter and the third chapter, and then I still have to remember this other stuff that I uh, was supposed to have memorized but didn't. So, uh, as it gets further and further in, it gets more and more difficult. Um, so, I wasn't particularly good. So, this is actually a participation medal. <laughs> but thank you, thank you. But I'll have you know that I also found in the official rules and guidelines the statement that the winning team is the one with the highest points at the end of the quiz. Though in quizzing, 
everyone who studies God's word is considered a winner. <laughs> so, I'm, so I'm a winner. My, my mom confirmed that. I called her and asked her. I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to take this off because it will probably be distracting for all of us, including myself. It was not meant for someone as large as me either. All right. So, so while I didn't actually do very good at the competition piece of it, there were some verses that you know, did stick with me. Uh, I, I always remember uh, James 4.10, which is humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. That was the one that I remember. It's probably the shortest one we had. So <laughs> it was something that I could really, and, it, and it's a very good, just very simple, straightforward action to take and something that you know, kind of comes with a promise from God. So that's something that stuck with me and actually ends up falling on the, the verses that we're going to be discussing this week. Uh, we'll be doing James 4, 1 through 10. So I thought that was kind of cool. So I'm going to open up some prayer, and then we will get started. Uh, dear Lord, I just thank you for this day that we have together. I just ask that you'd bless our time, bless our, our time spent as a community of believers. I just ask that you would, you know, speak through me in whatever words that you have, not necessarily what I had prepared. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if anyone needs a Bible, you can raise your hand. We've got ushers would be happy to, to bring you one of our, our Bibles in the back. Uh, for those of you who were not here last week, uh, Nate finished the end of chapter 3. Uh, the, main portion, the main thrust of that whole section was talking about what true wisdom looks like. Um, that, it, it's something that it shows exactly like what, an, what a real community should, of believers should look like. Um, it's how we should be acting together. So I wanted to include it because it's kind of a big transition from that into what we're going to be talking about today. So I'm going to start by reading in James chapter 3. Uh, verse, verse 13, and then we'll go through 4.10. Okay? So, chapter, uh, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So now continuing to verse chapter 4, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask God, I'm, excuse me, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity towards God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, your sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. So I find the transition between the end of chapter 3 
And the first five verses of chapter four are pretty interesting. You know, three ends by saying, peacemakers who sow in peace uh, reap a harvest of righteousness. And then the next five verses are not, uh, you know, said in a very peaceful manner. Not very, not very peaceful. And the beginning, if you look at the other sections kind of around this section, in the beginning of chapter 3, they talked about taming the tongue and being, you know, that kind of stuff. And then after this, next week, we'll be t- or the next time we talk about James, we'll be talking about judging one another. So these don't particularly strike me as uh, tame or non-judgmental. So why does James use this type of language in this situation? You know, I think verse 1 kind of gives us a hint of what's going on. Uh, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? There's obviously a brokenness in community that's occurring. Um, I, we don't really know why, what exactly caused this specific, uh, these specific questions, though I'm sure the people who received this would have known exactly what they're talking about. It's probably something that's very specific within their community. And it's, it's affecting the community, and that's, that's important to James. That's why James is choosing to use very aggressive language to, when, in talking to people. That's why it seems, it stands out, because we're talking about how we should do all these other things, and then when bro- community is broken, when that is damaged, it's going to have a big impact, and that's why uh, he's so passionate about it, and that's why he's so bold in what he's saying in this section. Um, so we don't know exactly what happened, but we do get some hints to it. Um, uh, James 4, 2 starts by saying, You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. So I'm, I'm not sure if, I mean, people can argue back and forth of whether it's kill in the literal sense or if it's in a hyperbole talking about that. There's evidence on both sides. There's not really a um, satisfying answer. But regardless, it's something that's not supposed to be happening in community. It's something that's not... You know, that's causing a divisive spirit. It's uh, separating people from each other. And unfortunately, you know, this is something that in our world today, in our churches today, this is not uncommon. There's infighting and quarreling. That is not uncommon in the church. I'm sure everybody has either heard of one or been involved with one. And we remember those things because they're scarring. They're damaging. They're painful things. Um, So why, what is the result of this situation? Uh, verse 2 continues by saying that you do not have because you do not ask God. Do you, see, do you see the connection there? When Christians are consumed with quarreling and fighting, we break community that we're called to have with each other. When Christians' community is broken, we feel separation from God. You know, this isn't the only place that this talked about it. Uh, when I preached in August, I used this verse, and I'm going to use it again from 1 John. Uh, it's verse 420. It says... Um, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. So that separate, you know, our brokenness, our broken community separates us from God. It, separ- it prevents us from having real relationship with Christ. So in addition to that, you know, if you look back, we talked a, you know, a couple months now at this point, in James 1.5 it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and will be given to you. you know, people are separated from this uh, ability to do this now. If I had to wager a guess, I'm guessing that this is kind of the source of their problems. Right? If, you, if, they weren't, if they started by not asking for wisdom, then they aren't able to do, in verse 119, what James says that, you know, uh, let's see. When you, I'm sorry. 
be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I don't think that they're able to do that without wisdom from God. We are not able to, you know, be, to listen quickly, speak slowly, and resist getting angry without God, without his wisdom being given to us. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, in applying the, the uh, James 1.5 guidance of asking for wisdom, I think a lot of people limit that to asking about the big stuff. You know, should I take this job? Should I move? Should I get married? Should I do this, this, or this? And don't, don't get me wrong. Those are all great things to be asking God for wisdom for. That is definitely should be occurring, and I would encourage you to do that. But it goes beyond that. Um, as Paul says, we should be praying continually. And that combined with James saying, well, we should ask for wisdom. You know, as we're praying, I think that we should be asking for wisdom preemptively so that when situations arise that we don't expect, then we can respond in loving and wise ways. Um, and that is because if we're not doing that, then we're going to say something selfish. We're going to say something that, you know, coming out of our own selfish spirit, and that's going to cause hurt feelings. It's going to cause divisiveness. And then that kind of, you know, rolls downhill there and gets much worse as it goes. So we have to break the cycle of separation if we want to function in a healthy way. We just have to. We have to be willing to be praying for that wisdom as we go along. So James then continues in verses 4 and 5. Uh, he says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity towards God? I'm sorry, against God. I said for last time. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? So, for James's audience, this would invoke thoughts of the covenant, the Old Testament covenant. Uh, it would also evoke thoughts of uh, covenant unfaithfulness, you know, stuff that occurred in the Old Testament. And I, I really think that th- this is important to understand, to really understand many portions of the rest of this section. So I want to take a minute and talk about what the covenant is, what, what the Mosaic covenant is between God and God's people. Uh, it's summed up in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, where it says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So this covenant can be described, and I'm going to say it wrong, so just accept that, suzerainty treaty. It's the first part of it, suzerain. I don't know how you do the rest of it. That's okay. I'm, not, I'm, I'm an engineer, talking no good. All right. Um, this, this idea of suzerain treaty, um, is, I, I came across it when I was studying the book of Ezekiel, and the, the commentator has a good kind of line on it. He says, this type of treaty was a kind of diploma, diplomatic surrender document whereby a great king, the suzerain, agreed to enter into a relationship with a lesser king, the vassal. In return for the protection and benefits of a good relationship with the suzerain, the vassal king agreed to submit to the suzerain, to serve him alone, and to pay tribute to him. A vassal could only have one suzerain, though a suzerain might have many vassals, who would have obligations to respect the rights of other vassals as well as the suzerain. At the end of these treaties, treaty documents, there were attached blessings and curses. So the Mosaic Covenant has a lot of these aspects, so that's why I draw this uh, comparison. Uh, the first thing that does, it talks about, you know, the idea of having only one suzerain. You know, we as a people can only have one, you know, greater king than us. We can't have many, all right? This is very evident when you look at the Ten Commandments. Uh, you must have, you must have, the first two, you must not have any other god but me. You must not make for yourself an idol for any kind of, 
of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or earth or in the sea. So both of these are talking about how we can't have any other God other than, you know, the one God. God is jealous. He's a jealous God. You can see this throughout the entire Old Testament. It comes up uh, very frequently, and that's kind of what James is talking about here. That's the kind of feeling that he's evoking, that God is jealous. He wants us only for himself. All right? So second, the second part of the treaty that kind of follows the suzerain model would be that uh, within the treaty, there are lots of things that the vassal king is expected to do. So things that they have to do in order to follow uh, and be the one, follow the one true God. So in this case, it's, if you look after the book of Exodus, you have Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and that contains the, what is pretty much considered the Jewish law. So that combined with Exodus and Genesis is what is commonly referred to as the Torah. So this is what the people of, of Israel had to, were required to follow. This was kind of the terms of their uh, you know, following God. Um, these laws were important because it really is what defined them as God's people. So the difference that they had, the way that they were different from the people around them, really is what defined them as uh, followers of God. Okay? So then, the third part is that at the end of a tr- the treaty, there are blessings and curses. So if you look in Leviticus, tw- Leviticus 27, and there's another comparison in uh, Deuteronomy, You'll see what happens if they follow the law, the blessings, or if they don't follow the law, the curses. So those are both laid out very clearly um, what happens. Uh, The same commentary that I read before explained this by saying that if the people were faithful in obeying the stipulations of a covenant, they would experience material blessings in their land of peace and prosperity, culminating in the crowning blessing of the Lord's dwelling in their midst. But if they were disobedient to the terms and conditions of the covenant, then they and their land would experience curse, culminating in a crowning curse of exile from God's land. So from Deuteronomy through the end of Second Kings and the parallel in Second Chronicles, you know, we see how this covenant plays out. Like, how did they do in comparison to the covenant that they made? Um, at the beginning, for the most part, they, they were staying within it, and they were blessed. They, you know, they, they were able to take the promised land, and they established their kingdom. They had God in their midst, whether it be the tabernacle before the, the temple was built, and then the temple after that that was built by Solomon. But after that, the na- after, the, after Solomon, the, the nation split. So when we talk about Israel, there's two. There's Israel in the north and Judah in the south. So ten tribes were in the north, and two tribes were in the south, and they split. Um, then basically the rest of it is kind of talking about, hey, this is, this is how these kings were in both kingdoms. And, you know, it says, you know, if they were good or bad, they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And as you go on, fewer and fewer of them are doing what's right in the eyes of the Lord. So there's this slow degradation away from, uh, from what was originally assigned to them to do in the covenant. Um, so basically, God sent prophets, so that's why we have the, the end of the Old Testament. We have our four major prophets and our 12 minor prophets. So those, those were people who were coming and transmitting God's word of like, hey, we need you to, you know, turn, come back to God, follow the covenant, obey the law that, you know, you agreed to as part of this covenant. Uh, an example of this is the book of Hosea. Um, basically, uh, in the first three chapters of Hosea, God gives him the instruction to marry an unfaithful wife. Uh, so he goes out, he marries Gomer, and basically she leaves, finds another man to go and live with, and then he, Hosea, could either you know, leave her and allow her to do that, or he can go after her. And he goes after her and redeems her and brings her back to that relationship with him. Um, the purpose of this prophecy was to kind of show that God 
really want, even though we as a people are going to be unfaithful to him, he's going to always come out and he's going to try and redeem us. He's trying to, to bring us back to him. So that was, that was kind of the whole thrust of the book, the major thrust of the book of Hosea. So most of the warnings were, however, uh, ignored, including Hosea. So finally God enacted the, the curse portion of the treaty. So the, the northern kingdom of Israel uh, was defeated in 720, around 721 B.C. and taken into exile. And the southern kingdom was uh, defeated in about 597 B.C. and they were taken in by the Babylonians. James's audience would have had all of this history and picture in mind simply by the phrase, you adulterous people. They would, they would immediately think of all of this as kind of the backdrop for this um, discussion. So, you know, that's why I think the Old Testament's important. That's why I try and understand the Old Testament more because there's a lot of phrases, like these three words have the entire story of Israel behind it. So it's important for us to know that and to understand that, just from a study standpoint. And, you know, there's a lot of complicated stuff in there, so asking questions and looking for people who know more. I, you know, when I really wanted to get into it, I went to Nate and to Mark and asked lots of questions and asked for resources and stuff like that. And, you know, that's what it takes. You know, we have to be willing to spend that time and really understand God and the history of God. Um, so James, so... This idea of adulterous people, God uses this image because, you know, adultery in a marriage is painful. It is not, it's not just painful for the people that are, are on the, 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 you know, sin toward side. It's painful on both sides. Everybody, no one wins. No one gets what they want out of it. Everybody ends up in a mess and everyone ends up in pain. Um, I think many people probably have experience with that, whether it be personal or someone they know again. You know, it touches us and it's very very messy. So this is exactly how, God, how our relationship with God feels when, he, when we're valuing what the world values over what God values. Um, it causes pain and it causes separation and it causes enmity. That's why it's saying that, you know, it makes us an enemy towards God because this pain and this suffering that comes from our infidelity towards him, you know, really impact our relationship and make it impossible for us to receive anything from him because, we're, because of that divide. But despite all this, God does want to redeem us, like the story of Hosea. He does want us to come back to him. And, he st- and James kind of reflects this when he starts this process in verse 6 when he says, uh, but he gives us more grace. That's why scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows his favor to the humble. Um, this, the scripture that they're referring to is Proverbs 3.34. And basically, James is using this as like a transition. He's transitioning to, okay, so this is where we are. This is what we're doing. Let's transition to what we need to do about it. So he's going to transition and talking about 10 imperatives, 10 things that we need to do in order to, to, to right our relationship with God. Um, I will say, before we get into those, that each, each one of them could be an entire sermon series. <laughs> Uh, we could spend a lot of time on each of them, and each of them deserve that amount of time. So uh, understand that. Like, I'm going to try and touch on all of them, but there is far more that can be discussed and should be discussed within these. Um, so the first thing that we say uh, is that, that James tells us in verse 7, he says, Submit yourselves then to God. Um, the idea carries with it, the, the idea of submission carries with it everything that you would think of when you think of repentance. So it's not just turning... You know, it's turning away from your old ways. But it's also um, a humble and contrite spirit, as the commentator that I was reading said. Um, 
And this is really our response to God's faithfulness. That, that is why we would submit ourselves, and that's what, you know, why uh, James used the, the Proverbs verse that he talked about um, in verse 6. Our culture doesn't like being challenged with submission. We don't, we don't like that. I think that's probably not just our culture, but I know it definitely is in our current culture that if basically telling someone to submit is implying that they're wrong, and you should never tell anyone that they're wrong. That's not, that's not true, but that's what, our, that's what our culture believes, that you, know, you should never challenge anyone with anything, which that is not aligned with the Bible. It's just not. It's not part of the gospel. It's not that. We, we are broken people. We cannot get out of our own way and do things right. We, the only way that we can get salvation is through Christ, is through his death and resurrection. So we have to submit to that in order to, you know, be in relationship with God. We can't get there. You know, we had the song that Tim was explaining this morning. We couldn't do it all. We couldn't get there. We had, if we had an entire lifetime, several thousand lifetimes, we would not be able to do enough to bring us back into right relationship with Christ. We have to be willing to submit. And, you know, a lot of people, when they think of submit, they think, okay, follow what the, you know, there's rules in the New Testament, let's follow those. That'll be our checklist as long as I'm following those, that's good. But the problem is that the New Testament doesn't cover every topic that you're going to deal with in your life. I think everybody probably has, uh, has had experience with that. We have to discern what God's will is in those areas. Um, and it's hard. It's scary, right? We know, I mean, if you look at Christian church history, you know that people have done it wrong. People have used, misinterpreted the Bible in such a way that they could mis, uh, mislead people and use people and damage people. All of, these were, all of these are in our history, but that doesn't take us away from having to do it ourselves. We have to be able to discern what God's will is in certain areas, even if it's not explicit in the Bible. Um, so I, I think, when I think of this kind of topic, uh, when we were in Michigan at the camp, Nate was talking to, to the guys. We had a, kind of a breakout session, and the guys were in one area, and the girls were in another. And we were talking about, well, how do I follow things? How do I know what God's will is in areas that, that you know, aren't explicit? And Nate had, a, had some good perspective on it. He basically said, hey, you know, as you follow what's written in the Bible, as you follow those laws, that's really going to hone your ability to understand what God values and understand what God's will is in different areas. And by doing that, it will make you able to hear God's voice and God's direction in areas that aren't explicit. And it does come with the whole idea of humility. Humility is kind of running throughout this entire section. You know, we have to be willing to, you know, try and find those things and try and find what God's will in these areas, but come at, come at it with a humble spirit, and if we're wrong, be willing to be corrected by it. Um, that's why we're in a community, because each of us individually could do different things, but ultimately, if we do it as a group, we're more likely to succeed. So, from there, James goes on to tell us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So, Jen, that's for you this morning, as you're preparing for the, for the, the Great Fall giveaway. As, as we do stuff, the more we get into it, the more, the more we do God-led stuff, the more we're going to get challenged from the outside, the more we're going to get attacked by the, by, uh, the devil. Um, I think people want to kind of shy away from the idea 
of the devil in our culture. I think people are worried that if they say, hey, you know, I'm being attacked by demons, that people will think that they're a ghost hunter and that's why they spend their weekends. <laughs> um, but Ephesians 1.6 tells us that for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There is, we are going to be attacked. Um, I like in this how, I, well, and I actually like how it's kind of phrased, because sometimes we think, you know, um, James is saying, well, if the devil attacks, then resist him. But really, it's not. It's in the affirmative. When he attacks, resist him. If you're truly following the first part of submission, you will have to resist the devil. And that's just reality. I like how these kind of are paired together, too, because most, you know, almost all the struggles that you're going to have are going to fall into one of these areas. Either you're going to have some sin in your life that needs to be rooted out, which leads to submission, or you're going to be being attacked from the outside and need to resist. Both of those, you need to, we, as, as those struggles come up, need to be praying and considering and asking for wisdom to understand which one it is, because it might not be clear, and the response may be different. So make sure as you go through struggles that you're praying for wisdom, praying to understand, you know, is this something that I should be resisting, or is this something that I should be submitting? Um, James continues in verse 4-8 by saying, Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Uh, again, the commentary that I was reading said that we should basically turn, uh, take the phrase come near in eschatological terms, and I probably said that wrong too because I'm an engineer. It's fine. It's good. It's learning. That's what happens when you just read stuff and you don't hear it. Then you, you give you all these ideas of how it should be phrased. Okay, but in any case, the phrase come near should be understood as has arrived. So when, what this means when it says to come near to God, you know, arrive with God, or, you know, be in complete surrender to God, be comfortable with God, reside, or as I like, as I like the, the one that I like the most was to abide in God. Because to me, to abide is to have rest in God, have peace in God. These are things, like, after you go through verse 7 and you're told to submit and resist, that's a lot of draining energy to do both of those things. And that is going to be how we're going to spend the majority of our Christian lives, either working through something we're being attacked by or working through something we need to submit. So the idea that we need to have rest in God is important, and that's why it follows in this section. Because if you're not resting, then you're not going to be ready for the fight. Um, I, just, I just think that it, it's, it's just a perfect way to kind of transition into that. So verse 8 continues and says, Wash your hands, your sinners, and purify your, heart, your hearts, you double-minded. Um, this, again, kind of harkens back to some Old Testament um, aspects. It's going to be talking, like, if you look at the, the Torah, if you look at the Jewish law, a lot of it was related to purity uh, and cleanliness. So a lot of it was related to, if you, don't, if you are unclean, then you are not allowed to enter the presence of God. And in some cases, you're not allowed to enter the presence of community. You know, you could be, depending on what uncleanliness thing is going on with you, you could be separated from different levels. So when James is talking about, you know, washing your hands and purifying your hearts, he's talking about, you know, cleaning that stuff out so you can return to a right relationship with God um, and be able to turn away from sin, which is separating you from his presence. Uh, so that, that kind of goes back to the first two verses, uh, the, 
the first two guidelines that were given. Next, we got verse 9. Uh, Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Again, this is, this is again, going back to Old Testament stuff. Again, there's a lot of Old Testament relationships in this, in this passage. Um, this is going back to a lot of prophecy-type stuff. This is, you know, it was not uncommon for a prophet to, you know, plead with the people to grieve for their nation, for the sin that they have fallen into, and for the fact that they're not following God. So that's the idea there. And then if you look at the phrase, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom, you know, that kind of goes back to Amos, the, the prophet Amos. He's, in 810, he's talking about, hey, guilt and repentance is going to spark, you know, change and spark uh, the people following after God again. So again, kind of this idea, do these things so that you are able to follow God and go back to him. Finally, verse 10. So the end of our 10 things that we have to do. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. I think in this verse that the people, people will often misunderstand what humbleness is. I think a lot of people will take it as either you have to be a doormat or you have to be... Um, putting yourself down in some way. And that's not really what humbleness is. Humbleness is putting God, like, rather than lowering yourself, it's raising God into the, his correct position in your life. So it's not about putting yourself down. You know, there is, you should, we should always be fighting pride, so, you know, don't go too far the other way because pride is bad. But... <laughs> Humbleness is not about putting you down, it's about putting God up. And I, we were talking about it on Wednesday, and I had my, my Beth's Southern Baptist rhyming impersonation, and said that humbling, humbleness is a willingness to be corrected and directed. You know, if we're willing to do both of those things, then we have a pretty good vision of what a humbleness should be in our lives. So, we've gone through a lot of things, so I want to give you a couple things to take away, a couple things to, to think about as we go through the week. Um, pray continually. Uh, when you do, be praying for wisdom. You never know when something's going to come up and surprise you, and it's going to be something that you have to react to and have to, you know, be slow to speak, uh, quick to speak, slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to become angry. I mix those all up, but I got them right in the end. So we have to be praying preemptively for wisdom so that we can respond correctly to those things. Um, I hate surprises. I'm not good at surprises. I I've actually taken what my father always said that, you know, he'll, if, I, if you asked him to do something, he would say he'd think about it. And if you pressed him on it, he'd say, well, if you need an answer now, the answer is no. So, so that, that is the tact I take, because if I respond, I probably am not going to respond the way that I want to. So, you know, being willing to, to pause and take that moment is important. So when quarrels and fights come up in relationships, which they will because we're broken, um, be willing to be the peacemakers and make sure that those wounds are dealt with because that will affect community and that will cause quarrels and infighting. Uh, third thing, uh, in the midst of your submitting and resisting, remember that we are called to take rest in God. Just, just you know, as you're going through struggles, as you're going through the things, remember, God has already won. We're, we're, we're playing out the end of it, but God has won and we need to live in that. We need to live in that peace, that you know, this may be difficult, this may be challenging, but ultimately God has won already. Uh, and finally, and this is, again, my engineering coming out of me, that we have to place God in the correct place by humbling ourselves and lifting him up. And I, as I was thinking about this, I thought of the nerdiest example that I could think of. 
Uh, God created gravity. And we all talk about how God has good things for us that will flow down to us. If we are above him, they don't flow up. That's not how gravity works. And we don't have pumps. We're not going to get into that discussion. (laughs) So with that, uh, I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. I think we have another song to do, and, and we can go with that. All right. Dear Lord, I just thank you for this time that we've had to get together. I just ask that you, uh, you would be with us as we go through this week. Uh, bless our community. Bless our time that we're going to spend with each other throughout the week. Bless our interactions with the people uh, in our lives so that we can show them uh, what a wise God looks like so that when they look at us, they don't see us, they see you. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Be the church.